0: This is Healthy Business with Dr. Charles Moak. Learn how to help transform your business into a wildly profitable, well-oiled machine. Start practicing health care that not only benefits your patients and your community, but grows your business. Thanks for being with us. I'm Cam Carmen here with Dr. Charles Moak, and we're talking about something that you are very passionate about, saving health care. Tell us about that. Yeah, so... When I'm talking about saving healthcare, I'm talking about it from an economic standpoint, mm-hmm. as well as fundamentally changing people's lives. And if we look at the economy and healthcare, it's really designed around maintaining disease, not reversing disease. In the Affordable Healthcare Act in 2011, if people call it Obamacare, they had to pass a law that healthcare companies were required to pay for cancer screening and other critical screening. Part of the time, they didn't have to. It was optional if they would pay for it or not. So Congress had to tell insurance companies, we want you to look for cancer before it gets too bad. Mm-hmm. And because health insurance companies are into disease management, they actually handle money to pay doctors for disease. They really weren't interested in preventing disease. It makes no economic sense. Also, there's a rule called the 85-15 rule in that same law where they've got to spend $0.85 cents on every dollar they collect on health care expenses. Not administration. Jeez. So if they lower healthcare costs, they're out of business, mm-hmm. right? So we made a law that would require healthcare companies to piss away more money. It's kind right. of kind of disgusting. And that wasn't the intent. That was definitely not the intent. There was no evil intent. But when you say you guys spend eighty-five cents on every dollar, the only way they can make more money is by spending more money, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. I know Blue Cross had to do a couple billion dollars uh, re- refund last year because they didn't spend enough on healthcare. So they're actually stuck with this environment. And it's interesting, I CVS bought either, I can't remember if it was Aetna or Humana, but the CEO of the healthcare company wanted to save healthcare. And he wanted to buy a drugstore, because he thought he could save healthcare by buying a drugstore, and he couldn't. So he didn't say he got the drugstore to buy his company. And the two CEOs met and talked about this. It was written in the chief executive magazine, I think it was, about two months ago. The idea was that if you have, let's say, diabetes, or pre-diabetes, you're in your doctor's office every three months getting this blood test called hgba one a one c and getting some tests done, and they modify your medications, and there's an office visit, you are spending some money, you're getting got a call, make an appointment, drive in there, show up, get your sit there for an hour, until like, t- t- you get undressed on a piece of paper, get your blood pressure checked, blood sugar checked, new prescription, now you get to drive to the pharmacy, get it filled and get it done. But you know, if you're in a hospital, and your dosage needs to be changed in your medication, mm-hmm. the pharmacist changes it. They're allowed to do that. They're oh. allowed, they actually are trained to practice some form of medicine. So they're not just filling out pills at CVS. Right. They also have the capability of treating conditions. So when I was in the hospital, for example, we would have a drug in a we'd say pharmacy two dose. And they would dose it based on the lab work, okay? okay. So they're allowed to do that. Uh, they're trained to do that. But we work people at the lowest level they're training at the highest. And what the insurance company wanted to do is get people out of the doctor's offices for minor things, like, again, like blood pressure. Mm -hmm. The pharmacist can check your blood pressure and adjust the medicine as needed. Now, the doctor's got to write the prescription for it, but he could write it for a year, she could write it for a year, and the pharmacist could could adjust it. Mm -hmm. Diabetes, same thing. Or how about this? This is one that we, we... thought something was going to happen, it didn't happen. They started putting these mini clinics in this type of place and in, in thing into uh, drugstores. Right. And the first assumption by ER doctors, as my background was, well, they're going to prescribe all these unnecessary antibiotics for colds. That's what when they come to the ER, they want a prescription for something and they want something for the cold. The only thing we have to give them is an unnecessary prescription. And we know that antibiotics for colds are medically unethical and inappropriate. People still do it because patients demand it. Right. They know bad mouth the doctor if they don't get it like I spent this money and got advice, I didn't want that. So it's a it's a really a, an epidemic of over antibiotics just like we overprescribed narcotics in the past. It's leading to a lot of health problems. For example, breast cancer is clearly related, related to unnecessary antibiotic use. So what happened, though, is we were assuming that the the nurse practitioner at the pharmacy would just write for an antibiotic. No, they weren't. They'd walk them over to the cold aisle oh. and talk about the they need. I mean, it's really kind of interesting, uh-huh. right, because you can still get something. In a doctor's office, the only thing you can leave with is a prescription or advice, and people don't want advice. They want something. Go right. to the pharmacy, you can leave with a few different things that probably work, okay? right. and they're, they're not dangerous like an antibiotic for a cold. So it's a beautiful idea, and you look at the things like telehealth and telemedicine. This stuff's coming, but it won't come under the current system because— Healthcare is designed around office visits, medical procedures, mm-hmm. and disease. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if your doctor spent a lot of time talking to you about you know your lifestyle. You could actually get rid of diabetes, but it's actually you don't get paid for that. Doctors don't get reimbursed for talking about lifestyle, talking about anti-aging. So that's that's a fundamental issue. In our business, that's a long story about what I want to say is that we want to kill off ten billion dollars a year waste. Right now, the condition we're going to have to call venous stasis ulcers, and this is related to the. Kind of related to varicose veins, same cause. Mm-hmm. Not exactly the same thing. But people get these sores on their ankles, and it's about 1.2% of people over 65. get them, They can get them much younger, but that's the statistic I have for, for elderly. We have more data on Medicare than anything else. And uh, so it's a small segment of the population, but it's hugely expensive. When somebody gets that ulcer, we use treatments invented in the 1800s today. Oh, my gosh. Okay? Today, we use stuff that invented in the 18, There's something called an Unaboot. Dr. Paul Una in the 1800s, a dermatologist <laughs> in Germany, he developed this Una boot, and they still prescribe them, oh, because okay. it makes a lot of money, it's done in the office, or in the hospital, in a wound care center, it doesn't really work, I mean, it works better than, say, you know, put a Band-Aid on it, but it doesn't mm-hmm. work compared to more modern, even uh, dressings, but they, it's a money generator. And uh, we spend uh, $24,000 a year of the patient's life for the next four years, so about $96,000 over four years, gets spent on things related to the wound. Oh my okay. gosh. Okay. Hospitalizations. Yeah. I mean, the classic story is that somebody's got a swollen leg and their doctor puts them on, on a water pill. And then it starts getting red and they think, well, maybe they have this infection. Send them to the hospital. And this is venous insufficiency. especially what I'm talking about. And they start getting a sore in their leg. Come to the hospital, diagnosed with cellulitis. So they put them on antibiotics, consult infectious disease and in the surgeon. The surgeon cuts off the sore. Puts them in these uniboots. That actually happens still in the hospital. And sends them home with home health care to do uniboots and off work for a couple months. Actually, about four months. And then the home healthcare care goes there and they keep changing the dressing. So there's a lot of money being made. But if we treat the cause, which takes about 30 minutes, it's gone for good. Oh, okay. Heels fashion is gone for good. They don't come back. Whereas if you do the dressings and the wound care, it lasts forever. Right. So for less than, way less than $10,000, we can eliminate 96000 And that's our math model. We want to save $10 billion a year. So we've pulled claims data throughout the United States. of people doing the wound, the boots, and the wound care versus doing the more modern thing. And we're just targeting cities that are wasting this a crap load of money. And it's usually cities that are dominated by hospitals mm-hmm. because they really, it's not a hospital-based procedure and they won't let their doctors really gently do it because it doesn't really create a lot of value like sick care does. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a good opportunity time for us right now because very few doctors are going out on their own so they can't really be mavericks and upset or disrupt healthcare. But uh, we have the capabilities, we're an entrepreneurial company and when we get to $10 billion healthcare savings, will are gonna go for $100 billion. And then right now I'm building some service lines that can achieve that. And it'll take us probably five years to mature them enough to get them to fruition, right? We're working with people doing, what's called critical limb salvage, where they go after a disease that results in amputation. Mm-hmm. They can actually reverse it about 95% of the time so they don't oh get gosh. amputation. And awesome. the economic impact of that is huge. Got down in, and we're not in that service line, we're actually coaching a company. If we get a success, we'll help him scale, and then we'll scale in other areas. There's a guy that wants to reduce uh, hysterectomies. There's a condition called chronic pelvic pain. It affects about 15% of women, but 30% of those are related to this problem with the circulation behind their ovary. And the treatment is, is taking birth control pills that reduce the size of the uterus or taking doing a hysterectomy or taking pain pills. Things are all undesirable. There's a way you put a little thing called a stent in this this iliac vein that makes it go away almost every time. Very easy to an office-based procedure. And it's way cheaper than a hysterectomy. And of course, a woman has a hysterectomy there's some other health problems that go along with it. So we're interested in that. And there's a practice that we own now in, in uh, Minneapolis. Dr. Bluchinsky who's a brilliant guy, he had this idea of reducing heart attacks. And his mission was to get people to treat heart disease the way we treat cancer. So in the Affordable Health Care Act, Congress mandated they would screen for cancer by the time they didn't have to, but there's no mandate to screen for heart disease. In fact, it's not covered by insurance to screen for heart disease, and cholesterol it does not screen for heart disease. That's a useless test for picking up heart disease, but the way we screen for it is using an ultrasound or a CAT scan, and the CAT scan, they check for hardening of the arteries, and that's a pretty good predictor of figuring out who's at risk for a heart attack does miss uh, African-Americans and women to some degree. So I don't think it's the best. has ionized radiation. The best is carotid and or femoral scanning. So carotid with or without femoral scanning. And if you can look at the carotid artery, which is in your neck, or the femoral, which is in your leg, and if there's, if there's thickening of the lining of the artery, we can guess your risk of having a heart attack in the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. And we can actually work to reverse it. So what this doctor did, is, he went to, he was an interventional cardiologist, working at the University of Minnesota, I believe, in Minneapolis in Called in and uh, he went to this pipe trades, which was a self-funded union. Mm-hmm. They pay their own insurance costs. And he pitched the idea of him screening their employees for disease 10 years before they get it. Because every plumber knows somebody that retired and then died of a heart attack, right? So, and they're, you know, they have good jobs and they want to enjoy their family and, and, and their retirement. So he pitched this idea to him and he set up a whole concierge cardiology concept where the union would pay him to do these screens and then manage the customers, their, their employees, to have less heart attacks. Because we know if we identify the ones that have heart disease, mm-hmm. and you say, look, you've got this plaque in your neck, they probably will stop smoking. They won't if you say, well, we don't know, you might have a problem, right? So uh, he sets this whole thing up, and he goes to his employer, and they're like, What the hell are you talking about? We don't prevent heart attacks. You treat heart attacks. Get your ass back in the cath lab. Right. And he told me he couldn't do it because that's, again, against the model of a a hospital system is not interested in stopping heart attacks. That's not what we do. We treat heart attacks. So he quit started his own business, and he kind of ran into a little problem. It was too successful, and he didn't know how to really scale. He was you know, he's in his 60s and he never ran a business before, so mm-hmm. he had more demand than he could possibly service. So he asked us to, to acquire his practice. And now since that time, he's really working on scaling that. He's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's, gonna, he's going to the, the teacher's union, and he's got some other opportunity. And we're looking at if we can really do this, we can have an impact. And here's what he's pretty sure now. We're gonna, we have a data scientist looking at this. But in two years, he can take 100 people, and through basically identifying 100 people that he's identified with premature heart disease, so if he sees, let's say that they screen a thousand people, find 100 that are at high risk. Those 100 people, he can actually cut out two heart attacks or strokes in the next 10 years. Oh my! Yeah. So you look at the economic impact of that. You know, a heart attack sure. is enormously expensive. Just related to heart attack is about 180 thousand dollars, or a stroke, and then the, not to say you know disability and the additional stuff down the road. But if we can head that off through really hyper focusing on their lifestyle. Mm-hmm. So he takes an average risk group of about seven and a half percent risk of heart attack or stroke in the next ten years gets him down about five point one. So really drops it materially. So he saves you know really two lives. And I think you can even step it up past that. He's really doing very conventional cardiac prevention because he's under a lot of scrutiny by these healthcare not by this union, like, hey we want you to do stuff like not I think you're going to shoot a lot more than that. There's a Dr. Joel Kahn here that's sort of like a, the vegan cardiologist, you know, and he really right. focused on like, just like this wrist down to nothing. Well, that mainstream medical has not accepted this idea of making heart attacks optional. So he is doing more conventional stuff with medications, blood pressure lowering, it's, it's Mediterranean diet, but still two lives out of 100 that, that's enormously impactful. It sure is. And uh, eight heart, heart disease is $864 billion a year. that we're, They're pissing away instead of preventing it. So if, if we can fulfill his mission of making heart disease like cancer, we're allowed to screen for it. Mm-hmm. And I think the way to do it is go to the employers. They're the ones on the hook for the cost because the you know like a company like General Motors or these big companies. I'm not sure the exact mechanism, but they're self-funded insurance companies. So like self-funded insurance plans. So they're they're putting money into a risk pool, and somebody like Blue Cross or Humana is managing that risk pool and taking a administrative fee. But if they can lower healthcare costs, the management company actually makes less money, so they're not motivated to. You know, to lower costs but the employer is right they want to spend less right so I think that's really the thing is going right directly to the ones spending the money and obviously the customers would like to spend less money on healthcare. that means they're sick sure. right? they'd rather sure. have something that prevents a heart attack than a great job at fixing it right tell us why you are so as we wrap up why are you so personally passionate about this uh, I think it's just a uh, inherent issue that of how I'm wired. So, you know, entrepreneurship was defined by John Baptiste, say, as some, taking something from a lower value to a higher value. When I started the practice, I was really focused on making things easier, better, safer for people. Mm-hmm. And then I realized the economic impact that those things had. And reframe reframed my wiring of what kind of purpose our company has. And uh, saving healthcare is something we obviously all can get behind. I can measure it and see if we've accomplished it. And it makes me feel really good knowing that we can have an impact. So absolutely. it's really all I think about. And it makes decision-making very easy. So if I'm looking at an opportunity, I ask myself, does this save health care or not? And that allows me to decide move forward or no-go. Well, absolutely great insight, as usual. Thank you, Dr. Moak. Appreciate thank, it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Healthy Business. We'll see you next time.